Okay, so um, we've been doing something that I haven't done uh, in a while, and that is we're covering the same uh, material on both Sunday and on Wednesday. Sunday, my goal is to make it more thematic, and Wednesday, my goal is to fill in the details and go verse by verse. So we have been in the prologue since January the 8th, and the prologue is John 1, 1 through 18. And uh, I read through that once again on Sunday. I've been teaching at this time from the New American Standard Bible, the 2020 update, um, which, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an update of the, the venerable Ameri- New American Standard Bible, which uh, came out, oh, the complete Bible through the Lockman Foundation came out in 77. It was updated in 95. And now I discovered it was updated again in 2020. And I really like the New American Standard, always have, was the first study Bible that I had was the New American Standard Open Bible. Um, however, if you use a uh, paper copy of Scripture, um, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is also another more literal translation that would uh, would be very close to where we are right now. Um, but if you're online, uh, you will see the scripture as I read it uh, come up uh, on the screen. And those of you here locally, you'll see it here on the screen uh, to my left and to your right. But you can also, I would always encourage you, uh, download um, the Bible app. Uh, the version Bible app, and any of these translations, you can always just click, and there it is right there on your phone. Um, additionally, with that Bible app, you can access Bible reading plans so that you can do a Bible reading plan that lasts a week, or you can do one that lasts a year. You can do one that's thematic. You can do one that is focused on reading through the entire Bible, reading through the New Testament, and so on and so forth. I would very, very much encourage it. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. Um, John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who is coming after me has proved to be my superior, because he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God the only Son or the only begotten God, who is, at the, who is in the arms of the Father or in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, okay? Um, so I have covered all of the verses in John 1, 1 through 18, except the verses related to John the Baptist. It is, we're, we're reading this prologue and we're focused on Jesus and then several times, uh, John steps away and points to John and says, John the beloved points to John the Baptist and says, see, this is what he said. And I have um, not brought those verses to light because my intent has been to go back and look at John the Baptist, right? And so then we look at those verses and we look at the rest of the verses in first uh, in uh, chapter one, as well as the verses in chapter three of John. 
it appears Craig is going to be teaching this Sunday, and it appears that that will be his topic. I told him what I was going to do, and he said, would you like me to do that? And I said, sure. So if that's what he chooses to do, um, then you will understand that I haven't avoided those verses if you've been paying attention. I've simply tried to... uh, to focus on one idea at a time, okay? So I say that because here in verses 14 through 18, we have one verse that relates to John, and I'm not going to focus on that tonight, okay? Um, I am going to, we are going to look at verse uh, 14, verses 16 through 18, okay? So let's go back up to 14. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As I said on Sunday, that means he tented with us. You're living in a temporary domicile right now. You know, when I'm at a funeral, um, as I uh, had the opportunity to uh, preach a funeral uh, last Friday. Um, these days, there are more memorial services that I am a part of than actual funerals. Um it seems that cremation has become very, very common uh, or popular. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but nonetheless, I'm simply saying that that has brought about the advent of more memorial services where the remains or the cremains in that case uh, may not even be there. But in a, in a funeral, it's, I mean, it's, it's a reality check for you because there are the remains of that person in front of you, right? And so I try to help people understand that was that person's home on earth, but that's not them any longer. But that's what we know that person as, right? This last uh, funeral that I did, uh, one of the granddaughters was very, you know, it was doting over the, uh, you know, um, the, uh, re- the remains of the person and so forth. I just... I understand where people come from, okay? People need closure. But for me, that's not how I want to remember that person. So I did um, our brother Vernon's funeral. And um, sadly, it was right as the shutdown was happening with COVID. So it was far smaller than I wanted it to be. Um, And, uh, but, you know, here were... You know, here was the casket right over here, and I chose to take my station, you know, over to the right of the casket. And I didn't want to see Vernon like that. I didn't want to because that's not Vernon anymore, right? That was his temporary residence. So as alive as we seem to be in these bodies, this is a tent, right? You know, it's like the difference between the tabernacle or the tent that the Lord lived in with the Israelites that moved around and the temple, which seems so much more permanent, but your earthly residence is not permanent. This is not our permanent place. So that's why uh, I think that this word that is used here in John 1.14 is important. Um, the word that we saw, the word of God, preexistent word of God, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. Nothing came into being without Him. He became a literal human being in a physical body, right? a temporary physical body. So this Word that is used here, that He dwelt among us, He tabernacled among us or tented among us, I think is important. 
Um, this is the, the Christmas verse from John, if you will, and that's the significance of our celebrating Christmas. You know, it's very beautiful with all of the lights and the trees and, you know, all these sorts of things. And then, of course, you know, the creche, the manger scene. Um, but the significance is that God became a human being, actually, literally, and that is of great significance. The eternal word of God became fully human. He became the human called Jesus. Now, up until this point, we haven't even heard the name Jesus, right? It's the word became flesh. Um, so we're focusing on the word. And now the only son from the father, full of grace. But we haven't even heard the name Jesus yet. Jesus is the name that the son who became human took on. And as I told you before, it's Yeshua, right? Yah, which is the short version of God's name, Yahweh, Yahshua, okay? Yah saves, God saves. And it's identical in Hebrew to the name Joshua. It's not any different, but we separate Jesus because Jesus is Jesus, right? So we want to show that, you know, this is the unique Yeshua, but it's the same name as Joshua, son of Nun, who took the Israelites into the promised land, you know, and fought all those battles and so forth. It's the same name as sometimes it's Joshua, sometimes Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, um, who was a high priest when uh, the first high priest, actually, when the Israelites returned from Babylonian captivity. Okay. But what we need to understand is that the word of God, the son of God, became a first century Palestinian Jew rooted in the culture of the time, an actual historical figure, not a legend, not a myth, but an actual human being who was located at a point in history. Jesus remained the son of God, having been born of a virgin with God as his father. God is the progenitor and the procreator of Jeshua, right? And, uh, you know, if you go back into the other Christmas accounts, uh, Matthew 1, 18 through 23, which talks about Jesus, uh, Mary was found to be uh, pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And then Luke 1, uh, 30 through 35. In fact, here is Luke 1, 35. Mary, who is a virgin and although engaged is not married, and in their day, as it should be in our day, um, if you were unmarried, you weren't having intercourse with anybody, right? That just didn't happen. And even when you were engaged, you weren't playing house. You waited. And engagement for them was a far more serious thing than it is for us. When you're engaged with somebody, you can just break it off. But engagement was a legal arrangement, so there was almost a divorce that had to happen. It was almost as severe or serious, and perhaps it was as serious legally as a divorce that had to happen between an engaged couple. However, there was no living together. There was no sexual intimacy. So Mary uh, asks the angel who says, you're, you know, you're going to, uh, you have been chosen and you're going to uh, give birth to the son of God. She says, well, how is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. And in fact, that's in Luke. Luke was a physician and he used the, um, the, the literal medical term of the time that meant virgin. The angel answers Mary, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, but he is literally begotten through Mary. We commit error and we misinterpret who Jesus was and is when we fail to recognize both the human and the divine in him. Some see them see him, Jesus, that is, as merely a man, others as God who acted human or pretended to be human, but really didn't take on human nature. So let's look at those who think that Jesus was only human. In the early church, in the early church, excuse me, a group we know as the Ebionites rejected Jesus' divinity. They had a very high view of Jesus, but they did not see him as a pre-existent figure, right? Or person. They were Jews and they held that Jesus was invested uniquely with divine power at his baptism. Similarly, um, several centuries later, um, in the sixth century, Islam came along and Muhammad uh, taught that Jesus, Issa, they call him, was a great prophet, a human being. But he was not the son of God. Uh, Islam denies that God could even or would even have a son. A number of popular books have come out in the last decade or two that make the case that Jesus Jesus was merely human. Uh, I bought one a ways back. Uh, was It was called The Misunderstood Rabbi, and it was written by a Jewish woman, and she wanted to everyone to understand that, you know, Jesus was really a rabbi in his time, and just people just didn't understand him, and they, they misinterpreted him. And then there was a book that was written by a Muslim several years back that made the case that Jesus was a political revolutionary. And the, the opposite was the case. Jesus never raised up an army and never caused his disciples to rebel. Um, when they wanted to fight, when he was arrested in the garden, he said, no, that's not what we're going to do. Jesus is more than a prophet, a teacher, a moralist, a magician. You know, there are those that say, well, you know, Jesus was a, was a first century mystic. And, you know, he did some incredible miracles and, you know, almost magical things, but that they don't believe that he was the son of God. He wasn't, was not a politician. He wasn't a philosopher as the, the Gnostics tried to make him. He's not the figurehead of a religion, new or old. No one has the right to reinvent or reinterpret Jesus to make him into their own image. And that is precisely what we see people doing all the time today and really throughout the centuries. All right, that's those who think of Jesus as being merely human, only human. Now, there are also those who have considered that Jesus is only divine, right? They only consider his deity, the inability or refusal to recognize that Jesus is the son of God who has become fully human is not new either. In the late first century, a group we now call the Docetists or Docetics rejected the humanity of Jesus because of their philosophical position concerning the material world. I mentioned this on Sunday. They were platonic dualists who believed that matter is inherently evil. Thus, Jesus could not have really become corporeal, physical, material. He only seemed to be a man or appeared to be a man. That's why we call them the Docetists or the docetics, because the Greek word for seem 
or appear is dokeo. Similarly, in our day, some Christians think like uh, popular creationist Ken Ham, who William Lane Craig assesses in this quote. Yes, Ken Ham has an extremely naive view of the incarnation, one that is not at all orthodox. His view is more akin to Superman disguised as Clark Kent. The human nature of Christ is essentially a disguise that the second person of the Trinity puts on. But just as Superman is fully conscious of all his powers and ability when he's dressed up as Clark Kent, so the incarnate second person of the Trinity, on Ham's view, is fully conscious and aware of all his powers and knowledge. And this is a view that is both unbiblical as well as unorthodox when judged by the great creeds of Christendom, right? And uh, if you go to William Lane Craig's uh, website, reasonablefaith.org, you can find uh, that article and many others. The early church struggled with the relationship between Jesus' humanity and deity. I've already addressed the Arian heresy with you, um, Arius, and not to, again, not to be confused with Arianism, white supremacy today, right? Arianism in the first, uh, in the, excuse me, the fourth and fifth century was a heresy that uh, came from the teaching of a deacon in the church named Arius, hence Arianism. And he taught that Jesus was a created being, the greatest of all created beings, the first of all created beings, but nonetheless a created being. Uh, the famous statement made by Arians is, uh, there was a time when he was not. Well, of course, that completely disagrees with what we've been looking at here in John chapter one and the related passages that I've given you, okay? Um, so in the first ecumenical council, the council of Nicaea, they settled that. No, Jesus is one with the father, okay? It's hard to understand, but they are of the same essence. They're different persons, but they are homoousion. They are of the same essence, okay? So then we start looking at the humanity of Jesus and we say, well, how does the humanity of Jesus and his divinity, how does that relate in his, um, his state? Uh, th th there are two states that we refer to, okay? Jesus in his exaltation, where he was before he was a human being and where he is now, and Jesus in his humiliation, not to be con uh, confused with uh, the negative connotation of that term, oh, you were humiliated, is in his humbled state. Well, once Jesus was united with a human body, Right? Once the Son of God became this human being named Jesus, how does the divine and the human relate? Well, there was a heresy that came along early on by a teacher named Nestorius, and hence it's called the Nestorian heresy. And uh, this is from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. Uh, it uh, succinctly defines that the Nestorian heresy was that there were two separate persons in the incarnate Christ, the one divine and the other human. That's kind of like being a multiple personality, right? You know, Jesus is, I'm the divine Jesus. Now I'm the human Jesus. Two completely separate persons. Well, that heresy was uh, dealt with in the council of Ephesus, which is the second ecumenical council. Council. 
Then there was the Monophysite heresy uh, that was propounded by a fellow named Eutyches. And Eutyches affirmed that there was only one nature in Christ after the union, that is, after the union of the the divine Son of God with the, the human Jesus. And he denied that his manhood was consubstantial. They were of the same substance with ours, right? Well, that was also dealt with. And this in the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, when the formulation was made that Christ was and is one person with two natures. Now, we can think of this when we look at ourselves, uh, and this is, uh, you know, merely exemplary. But when you come to Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit enters your innermost being. We say Jesus in your heart, right? He enters your innermost being, your heart, where your spirit is, that part of you that will um, um, transcend the grave, okay? And he creates a new nature in you. He gives you a new birth. But it doesn't mean that the old nature is gone. You have to treat the old nature as dead, as crucified with Christ. But the reality is that old nature, that human nature, apart from God, still lingers. That's what the Apostle Paul called the flesh, right? The old nature, the human nature part. So when we fail to focus on the Lord and submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus, that old nature takes over, right? And so we have all those old habits, that have come upon us since our childhood and and youth and early adulthood. And those things are still there. I have to constantly, through this process of sanctification, put that old nature away. Consider it dead. Now, Jesus had a human nature as well. The difference is, and I'll mention this again in a moment, is Jesus' human nature was not sinful, Our human nature is inherently sinful and it has to be submitted or surrendered to Christ if we're going to become more like Jesus. But Jesus had two natures. He has to this day, two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. It's a very, very powerful idea. He is still a resurrected man as well as the one and only son of God as he has been from eternity past. Jesus then is the God-man. So this is where the math doesn't uh, flesh out, right? Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, but he is 100% one person and one with the Father. Well, the Apostle Paul helps us understand the the connection of the divine and human natures of Jesus further in um, what has been referred to as the canotic passage um, of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Hence the kenotic passage, right? Kenoo in Greek means to empty. Taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. So he became a created being, inhabited a created being's body. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I, I treated this rather extensively on Sunday. 
So a theological approach known as canotic theology comes out of this. Canotic, as I said, from the Greek word kenoo, translated emptied above. Um, the noun is kenosis, by the way. This theological approach has become central to my uh, understanding of the incarnation and indeed my understanding of how God deals with human beings. Listen to this um, from a, a writer from the latter part of the 19th century, uh, D.W. Simon, in his book, Reconciliation Through, Our, Through Incarnation, wrote the following, with which I am 100% in agreement. In the creation, God certainly limited himself with reference to future choices and deeds of free moral beings. That's you. You're a free moral being. If men have any true freedom, it must be because of divine self-limitation, which chooses not to determine every action of his creatures, but rather gives them the responsibility of making real choices. The incarnation then becomes a further and supreme example by which God limits himself in relation to his creation. He actually comes into his creation accepting the limits of creaturehood. This is so important in my opinion, and it is not necessarily accepted by even some uh, very well-respected and orthodox individuals, right? So there's an old philosophical conundrum that I will use to try to um, uh, illustrate this. Here it is. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Well, if you say, yes, he can, then you're saying, well, there's something that God can't do. If you're saying, no, he can't, you're also saying that there's something that God can't do. But I will say, yes, he can, because God can choose to limit himself. He made a rock so heavy that he can't lift it by making you with a free human nature. You know why there's a hell? In spite of the fact that God doesn't want anybody to perish, there's a hell because you have the ability to choose to follow Jesus or not, to choose to exercise your faith in Jesus or not. And if, you know, someone rejects the Lord Jesus, then there's nothing else for them. There's not another place, right? There's eternity in the presence of God and eternity apart from the presence of God. And I hope that that is ultimate destruction for those people. I'm not a, uh, a person who buys into eternal conscious torment, but that's a discussion for another time. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. The three omnis, okay? Omnipotent, all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing. Omnipresent, everywhere. The Son of God shares these qualities of the divine nature. However, when the Son became a man during his time of humiliation, he obviously gave up the ability to be omnipresent. He was only present in one body, right? At one point in time, could only occupy uh, three-dimensional space, you know, at one place in time. The Son of God shares these qualities of the divine nature. However, when he became a man during his time of humiliation, he not only gave up his omnipresence, but he also limited himself in respect to omniscience and omnipotence. He was completely dependent upon his Father. He became the perfect human being. 
who chose to limit himself in regard to these divine attributes. In other words, the baby Jesus in the manger wasn't contemplating calculus, okay? He was a real baby in the manger, right? That, you know, that beautiful Christmas song that has the line, no crying he makes. Oh, I guarantee you he cried. He cried, he pooped his britches, okay? The scripture says he was tempted in every way like as we are and yet was without sin. So um, when we see Jesus as a 12-year-old, this is also in Luke. I mentioned uh, the Luke passage earlier regarding uh, the angel visiting Mary. That's Luke chapter one. In Luke's gospel in chapter two, we find the 12-year-old Jesus as a genuine early adolescent discovering his own identity precocious, asking questions and answering questions in the temple. Listen to this account from Luke 2, 46 through 49. Then after three days, see, they lost Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? You're, you're tasked with taking care of the son of God and you just assume he's a responsible kid. He can take care of his business. We don't see him around. You know, we've come to Jerusalem for the festival. Now we're all gonna go home. We're in the caravan. Hey, I, we haven't seen Jesus in a while. Where's Jesus? I remember this when your kid was younger. Where's Craig? Where's Craig? You know, and Craig's, Craig's buddy, Elijah, he was even worse. Where's Elijah? He says, that was the question all the time. Where's Elijah? They were 12 and 13 year olds. Well, where are they? Because they just get an idea. They just go toward their idea, right? Um, so they lost Jesus for three days. Three days. Imagine losing your kid for three days. And they're having a heart attack. Okay. Um, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. I love this. You know, who did he stay with? You know, he's, he's totally trusts God, even as a 12-year-old. He's like, eh, my parents will come back. It's all good, right? All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Whoa. So here we can see these two natures interacting right there. He's definitely a 12-year-old, but he has a unique relationship to God that nobody else has. Further, as we go on, Jesus got tired. We're going to see that in John 4, 6. Um, you see it in Matthew 8, 24. He got angry. We're going to see that in John 2, 15 through 70 when he drives the, the money changers out of the temple. He was deeply moved emotionally. We're going to see that uh, in the, the death of Lazarus account when he raises Lazarus, John eleven thirty three and 38. He became sad. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. He, he grieved, it was grieved. He was distressed when he was in the garden. Um, the language there is very, very powerful that he was, he was distressed to the point of death. He wanted his friends, and that's Matthew 26, 22 and 37 and 38, the account of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He wanted his friends to pray with him and encourage him. That's also in the Matthew account in 26, 38 through 45. However, Jesus was different than the rest of us in this very important way, as I mentioned earlier. We all sin. Jesus did not. He never fell short of God's glory. He was the perfect man. 
Uh, I, I quoted this earlier in part. I'll quote it here uh, in, the, in total from Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So as the result, the innocent son of God could take upon himself the sins of the world and die in our place to pay the death penalty for our sin. Jesus is our high priest before God. He made atonement for sin with his own blood. Further, Jesus is our advocate before God. And through the Holy Spirit, he comes to our aid when we are tested or tempted. Listen to this, just a couple chapters previous from the verse that I quoted a moment ago in Hebrews 4. Here's Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's important for us to understand. If Jesus just seemed to be a man, but well, Jesus was God. You know, he didn't go through what I go through. No, he went through exactly what you go through, but didn't give in. He didn't give in to anger. He didn't give in to, you know, depression or, um, you know, despair, right? He was tempted, he was tested, but he came through and he can come to your aid. So I'm going to quote this exactly as it appears. It has, uh, it has one, word, one obscene word in it, so you'll forgive me in advance, but it's not my terminology. U2 lead singer Bono expressed his wonder concerning Christ's incarnation in a post on the band's website in 2015. The idea goes, if there's a force of love and logic behind the universe, then how amazing would it be if that incomprehensible power chose to express itself as a child born in shit and straw and poverty? To me, this is not a fairy tale, but a challenge. I love that assessment, right? Including the scatological statement. Because it brings you all the way down to who Jesus became for you and I. Jesus Christ is the force of love and logic behind the universe. He's the word, the Logos, who emptied himself and became a servant to God and human beings by becoming human. Then he lowered himself through the shame and suffering and excruciating death on a cross. On the third day, he rose, and after revealing himself to his followers for 40 days, he ascended to the highest heaven, returning to his exalted state, where he is now. One day, every person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the other half of that passage from Philippians 2 that I quoted earlier, which says that Christ emptied himself. In Philippians 2, 10 through 11, it says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't wait until that day. You have the opportunity to confess him as Lord now to your salvation. You will confess him as Lord one day, but if you refuse to believe in him now, it will be to your eternal condemnation. Now we turn to verse 16. I'm skipping 15 because it focuses on John the Baptist. 16 says, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. 
So Paul affirms in Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. As beings made in God's image, we receive fulfillment only in him. In and through Jesus, you and I can become what God intended us to be. Jesus is what we were intended to be. We are human beings made in the image of God. And the only way we're going to attain fulfillment is to receive that fullness of the divine from him and have the divine image restored in us, the image of God restored in us. It's an act of God's unlimited grace. We've received grace upon grace. Throughout the journey of becoming like Christ, we never come to a point where we do not require God's grace. As I mentioned earlier, um, when you receive Christ, you receive a new nature, but you still have that old nature to contend with. That's why we need grace. Constantly we need grace. Right? Because we make mistakes. I, I mean, can you say you haven't sinned today? Can you say you haven't made a mistake and fallen short of God's glory today? Well, I can't say that. But I can say that I am upheld by his grace. And I am propelled forward to become more like Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind and striving toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3.14. Um, from birth to rebirth to eternal life, all is a gift from God. That's grace. In trial and temptation and when we fall into sin, we need God's unlimited grace, which comes through Christ. Of his fullness, we have received and grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized or became through Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Moses was God's mediator to enter into covenant with the children of Israel. He was the... the the go-between between God and the children of Israel, right? He was also the one who communicated, through whom God communicated um, his commandments, the, uh, the uh, conditions of the covenant, okay? Jesus, however, is the mediator of a new covenant, and that covenant is in his own blood. He's our teacher, bringing grace and giving us the eternal truth upon which the commandments were based. The law is given through Moses. The law is just, this is what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. This is what you're going to do. So if I'm driving down the road and it says the speed limit is 45, and I say, well, I don't agree with that. And there's a police officer sitting there. It doesn't matter what I agree with. Perhaps, and people do this all the time, you try to rationalize with the police officer, okay? Um, I say 45 advisedly because um, coming down Interstate 78, coming south on 78 into downtown Garland, okay? The speed limit drops from 50 to 45 to 40, just like that, okay? I got a ticket one time because they're, uh, I haven't seen them out there recently, but there used to be um, motorcycle cops that would sit right there where the speed limit drops and they would just hammer people with tickets. Okay. So I got impatient. I was behind somebody that was going too slow. It, it's frustrating to me when people just don't do the speed limit. There are people that think they're on the Indianapolis motor speedway and they've got to just bob and weave and, you know, go around everybody. 
And then there are people that just are so slow. And they, the light changes and they don't want to go. I need like a little, like a little horn button that doesn't sound obnoxious so that I can just say, wake up, get off your phone. The light changed. Okay. So I was being impatient as I am wont to do. And I went right around this person. And of course, you know, I had to speed in order to do that and got nailed right on the other side of that. Now, this has been about five or six years ago, all right? But it doesn't matter that my rationale was this person was going too slow. I wasn't going to keep going fast, officer. I was just trying to get around them. The reality is the speed limit was 40. Probably by the time I got around him, it had dropped to 40. And I was probably doing about 50 or 55 or maybe even 60 during the time I was going around them. The law simply says, this is the speed limit and your rationale is irrelevant. Doesn't matter, right? This is, you know, many of you in this room have had kids, right? This is when you tell your kid, this is what you're supposed to do. And they, and they say, why? And what do you say? Because I said so. <laughs> I'm laying down the law. These are the rules and I don't want to explain it to you. However... You are wise if, as they get older, when they're not being obnoxious, okay, and just resisting you for the sake of resisting you, you do explain so that they can incorporate your rationale into their own morality, right? Then they understand the undergirding truth behind this, right? So here's a good example, and I'm almost brokenhearted, and yet not, okay? Um, so we're at karate last night. And uh, Shiloh likes to uh, kick me, okay? He likes to kick me. And he's five. It doesn't hurt, okay? Um, so he was back there and he was throwing his, you know, throwing his kick up there. And I just grabbed his foot and dumped him on his little butt. And he just looked up at me. He was shocked. What? How could you do that to me? You know, breach of trust or something. And so I took him by his little shoulders and I just told him, you know, not don't kick me or I'm going to punish you. No, what I said is you need to get that foot back on the ground as fast as you get it off the ground because somebody can grab it. And then I told him that's what I like to do when I spar. When somebody kicks me, I grab their foot and I dump them on their butt. Oh, okay. So what did I do? I showed him why I did what I did. Okay. Um, I tried to improve his life as the result of that. All these examples, Jesus inhabits us through the Holy Spirit. He's the Logos, right? He's the Word. He's the truth behind all of this. So we understand what is the root of the law, the basis of the law, right? And so we can properly interpret that and apply that to our lives. Um, Jesus revealed the nature and the will of God to his disciples. And so he does to us. He connects us to God as friends and family. Okay. So uh, this real grace and truth are realized through Jesus. Listen to what he said to his disciples um, in John 15, 15. He said, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends because all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
This was promised in the Psalms. In Psalm 25, 14, this is the, the uh, <clears throat> Christian Standard Bible. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to them. That's what you want. You want the secret counsel of the Lord to be revealed to you. Not only do we know how we're supposed to live, that's the law, we know why. This is helpful, especially in an age like ours where the most fundamental ideals are being questioned. Not only do we be behave, we believe. I don't strive to please God by keeping commandments. I have a new nature. The law is written upon my heart. The law of God is a, a part of who I am now, right? The, the way God wants us to live is a part of my conscience, a part of my nature. The Holy Spirit teaches and guides me. As Isaiah the prophet promised, this is Isaiah 30, 20 through 21 in the Christian Standard Bible. But your teacher will not hide any longer. Your eyes will see your teacher. And whenever you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear this command. Uh, we'll hear this command behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Friend, this is what I told you guys all the way through the pandemic. You need to pay attention to the movement of the Holy Spirit, right? We were all freaked out about, you know, whether we should go outside and if we were gonna get the virus and so forth. And, and you know, now we see, so I'm on Twitter and obviously there are not many people that I know on Twitter because I'd really... I got off Twitter for a long time. And then when I got on, I got on afresh. I didn't just try to get on. And so it seems like nobody that I know is there, but it's I get on there so I can follow news sites and, and so forth, right? But there are these people that are just, they're so ridiculous. People on the, the far right and the far left, they're just so ridiculous, right? About the, you know, the vaccine and, you know, and all of this other stuff. And it just became political. And that's what I told you guys. You need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Okay, you don't need to pay attention to the Democrats. You don't need to pay attention to the Republicans, right? You don't need to pay attention to the extremists. You need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, right? Going all the way back. Should you get the vaccine? Should you not get the vaccine? I prayed about it. I wrestled about it. I wrestled through it, okay? And I got it. I got, you know, the two shots, but I didn't continue getting booster after booster after booster after booster. Now, I wasn't working in the school district like some of you where you, you know, you, you have to do certain things. It was just a decision that I made. Right, and I prayed through it. Um, you need to. You needed to know who you were exposed to, what your physical limitations were, because people really did die of COVID nineteen. Yes, they were overreporting and, and all this other stuff. But the guy that used to inspect this building, the 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 fire inspector that used to inspect this building, um, they put a notice on the door right in the middle of COVID-19, hey, you know, we need to come and inspect. And they never came back. And I called the guy's number and he never called me back. Two years later, another fire inspector slaps the, the sticker on the door and I have him come in. And he said, oh yeah, that guy died of COVID-19. He was 48 years old, right? So, you, you know, there, there was reason to be concerned. Again, all of these issues, it's not just about moral choices and so forth. It's about being led by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Your teacher will not hide any longer. Uh, John, this same John will say in 1 John chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. So it's important that we pay attention to him. 
All right. So I thought I was going to be able to finish um, the prologue tonight, but I'm going to finish next week with verse 18 because our time is up. So thank you for joining us online. I appreciate it. And thank you for you guys that showed up here locally. If you would like to give us feedback, uh, you can go to our website, lifewellchurch.com, and you will find uh, on the main page, there's a feedback tab, and you can click that. You can fill out that form. Uh, you can give us feedback. You can ask for prayer requests, all sorts of things like that. I hope that you are able to do this. We have a text service uh, that I use to send out information on our church throughout the week. And uh, basically, all you need to do is text the word LIFEWELL, from your phone to 94000. And if you do that, it'll drop you into that news text list, and you'll get a couple of those texts uh, from us every week.